Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. We're here with screenwriter and author Mark O'Connell to talk to him a little bit about his expertise in the world of UFOs and science fiction. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm great, Mike. Thanks. How are you? I'm I'm having it's it's a warm spell up in Minneapolis this week, so it's a it's an absolute delight to me. We're we're just above freezing, so it's a nice. It is a great Monday uh, for me. (laughs) So uh, just to let the listeners know, this is a a particular treat for me. Now I haven't met Mark before, uh, but I knew his parents, and he's from the same hometown, Big Bend, Wisconsin, that that metropolis of the macabre. That Allison, who you guys have heard in the podcast before from Milwaukee Ghosts, um, and I are from too. And uh, I knew Mark's parents through church and everything like that. And so to get to, to find another uh, explorer into the realms of the unknown from a town of 1,300 people is certainly a delight. <laughs> and um, so, so, Mark, you grew up in Big Bend. And uh, what were some of your favorite sci-fi stories and authors when you'd grown up? Oh, boy. Um, the big ones would probably have been uh, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Jose, uh, Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld series, which I've actually just been rereading recently. Um, are, are anything of Arthur C. Clarke. Anything of Ray Bradbury, anything by Jack Chalker and Af- Alfred Bester. Alfred Bester was one of my favorites. Um, the Star's My Destination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, what's the, what's the title of the other one? Oh, it'll come to me. Sure. Um, but th- those are a sample. And the funny thing is, I, I, my first access to all of those books was at the Big Bend Village Library. What do you remember, Mike, of the Big Bend Village Library? I remember a room, uh, and uh, I think the first book I got out of there was a James Bond novel. I think it was oh, nice. the original uh, Ian Fleming version of Goldfinger. Huh. A- and then my mother was like... I. I don't know. I think those books are more sexual than the movies. And I, I don't know if you should be reading that. And then I read it, and it was, and I thought it was great. Um, but the Big Bend Village Library, absolutely. The Big Bend School Library, the elementary school, had tons of, we- of weird stuff uh, that, I would, that I would pick up. There was um, au- they had plenty from this author, Daniel Cohen, who had, I mean, he was like the young adult paranormal writer. Oh, when okay. I was growing up, so I think I I read and reread every single one of his books like thirty times, like witchcraft in the seventeenth <laughs> century, UFO uh-huh. stuff, ghost stories, and uh, and so no, I every of the big from the Big Ben Village Library and the Big Ben Elementary School Library, I read them out of <laughs> of occult stuff, and I had to go eventually to the Waukesha Public Library. I had to do the upgrade. Yeah. To the yeah. Waukesha Public Library. Number one, because they had more cult books. Number two, because they had more Doctor Who books. And that was. Oh, fun. of course. 
Well, I went to the Catholic grade school in Big Bend, oh, and our yeah. library there was about the size of a small closet. So <laughs> that didn't help me much. But the village library, my mom worked as a volunteer librarian there for many years, and a lot of times she would she would take me with her to the library. And I don't remember if it was because she didn't have anyone to watch me or if it was because I wanted to go with her. The, the reasons are a little murky now, but... I would I would spend a lot of long nights at the Big Bend Village Library and and uh, you go through a lot of books right. uh, on, on some of those long nights and the two sections of the library that that always attracted me were books about cars I've always been a car guy okay but then they had a little corner or a little shelf that had a few books about UFOs and Bigfoot and the Bermuda Triangle and I just zeroed in on those books and just devoured them. So that's that's kind of where it all starts is from that little that one little bookshelf in the Big Ben Village Library oh. that ha- that had things like Chariots of the Gods and you know Frank Edwards early UFO books um, mm-hmm. yeah all sorts of crazy stuff and I just I love that I love those books no no me too and when you say Chariots of the Gods uh, funny enough that was one that was on my father's bookshelf oh and uh, so Chariots of the Gods. Um, made me think that uh so your father was also a so my dad was a public public school science teacher and that was the same thing with your father right like my dad took your dad's position yeah dad would dad was not a science teacher he um he was an english teacher and uh and and you know a lot of for a lot of his career just an elementary school teacher so you know he taught everything okay okay i see i was gonna say like is it is the uh, the exposure to <laughs> to science? Well, probably the exposure to education is yeah. one is one thing that uh, you'd find I find in a lot of people who are into the unexplained. Yeah, absolutely. There were always there were always books in our house. Um, you know that we 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 all made use of the library as often as we could. So yeah, we were. We were we were a very literate family in a very literate household, and and learning learning was everything. So when did when did you start uh, exploring uh, writing yourself? You know when you re- you did the reading and when did you start? What was your first short story? Uh, it was probably um, well. I remember the first short story I remember was something I wrote in college. I was going to the University of Southern California. I was only there a very short time, but I but I made the most of my time there. Um, and one of the classes I was taking was literally the history of entertainment. And it was, it was just an incredibly fun course. It met once a week on Wednesday night at this nightclub in downtown LA. And the teacher brought in the most amazing guests. I mean, they were all sorts of vaudevillians and movie and TV actors and entertainers. And one week, uh, he announced that at our next class, Ray Bradbury was going to come and give a talk. Oh my God. Yeah, I just flipped out. I flipped out. I thought, I cannot let this opportunity go to waste. So I had an idea for a short story. I wrote it in, you know, in the course of probably a couple hours because I thought, okay, he's going to be looking for any reason to not read my story. Of course. So if I want to get a story in front of him, I better make it short. I better make it really short. So I wrote about a three-page science fiction story. Um, and when Wednesday night came around and it was time for the class, uh, Ray just, you know, it was a kind of class where the instructor would just 
sit up front and have a discussion, just have a long rambling conversation with the guests. So Ray just talked and talked and told all sorts of anecdotes about his career um, and his writing. And when the, it was wonderful, it was just a wonderful night. And then when the class was over, um, I went up to him and I, I just said, Mr. Bradbury, I, I wonder if I, I wrote a story. I wonder if you would take a look at it. And there was just this moment, this look that flashed across his, across his face where, you know, he kind of cringed a little. Of course. But he was such a nice guy. He didn't want to put me off. And, and he said, I would love it, but you'd have to give it to me with an, a self-addressed envelope. Well, it just so happened that in my mail that day, I had gotten a big, you know, uh, eight and a half by 11 size manila envelope in the mail addressed to me. And I, God knows what was in it, but right. Who cares? I, you had but it. I, I had just happened to slip the story into that envelope to carry it to the class. Oh, yeah. So, so as soon as he said that, I said, oh, here you go. And he, he kind of, his oh. face kind of fell for a second. Like, <laughs> damn, he got me. Um, so he took the story and he was really nice about it. And then a couple days later, I found out that he was actually appearing somewhere, uh, on the USC campus. And so I just made sure I was outside that building. And when he came out, of course, he's, you know, swarmed with all these admirers and fans. And I just kind of cut up to the front of the crowd and I just said, Mr. Bradbury, have you had a chance to read my story yet? And everybody just kind of looked at me like, who the hell are you? Right, who is this and, and Ray, Ray looked at me for a second and he re- he recognized me and he said, and he said, oh, yeah, I have. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. And sure enough, a couple of days later, uh, I got the story back in the mail with a nice little note from him saying, Mark, I like this story. I think it's good enough to submit to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Oh, Which man. was an incredible thing to happen to, you know, a twenty-year-old aspiring writer. Right. So uh, I did submit the story. It didn't sell. I think I submitted it to a couple different science fiction magazines. It didn't sell, and my guess was because it was too short and pretty underdeveloped. But what the hell, you know? It, it was all the encouragement I needed to get a start. Yeah, and th- I mean, what a just what a fantastic story. In that, like, well, you know, the, one of the first short stories I wrote, I. I just got a little feedback from Ray Bradbury on it. Oh, <laughs> just a little feedback from Ray Bradbury. That's cool. You know, that's like me sending my – you know, it's like, yeah, Mick Jagger worked on my song. It's like the second song I've ever done. <laughs> right. It's cool. Yeah, he just sang backgrounds. It's all right. Um, yeah, we let him. We let him help out. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was in the next studio. But, no, that's awesome. Um, so that's really exciting. And, you know, coming on to that, uh, how – did you you obviously submit started submitting stories after that? Well, it was while I was at USC that I took my first screenwriting class. Mm-hmm. I knew I knew I wanted to be involved in making movies and TV shows. I didn't really I hadn't really fully thought out how I wanted to be involved in that. Sure. But in that semester I was at USC, I took a screenwriting class and it was it was <laughs> the, the, the guy who taught the class was a really old-school Hollywood screenwriter. He had worked uh, in the, the Hollywood studio system where, you know, he had been basically on a script-writing assembly line. Sure. But, but he had kind of made a name for himself writing this crime drama in the 50s called The Naked City. And it was a big deal because it was the first time anybody had ever written a, uh, a crime movie based on actual police files. Okay. So he really made a name for himself with that and had, you know, had a pretty distinguished career after that. 
and was was fairly well known. Well, he he taught our screenwriting class, and he didn't. My recollection is he never actually taught us anything. <laughs> he he just told a lot of stories about his career, which was wonderful. But what you know, the few actual writing assignments we did have were so much fun that I I just got hooked and I thought, okay, this is how I want to get into this industry as a writer. Okay. So that's where that seed was planted. Awesome. And now, and so obviously you had the interest in science fiction, had the interest in weird stuff and uh, had worked on, you know, sci-fi short stories and everything. Um, you know, how did, how did you break in to Star Trek to Next Generation? Like, how did you submit to that? Did you have an agent? Did you, were you just watching one day and you're like, I have an idea. I'm going to make it, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make it so. And then like how, like that is prestigious. And guys like me that I remember, you know, talking to your, uh, you know, your, your mom and dad at church and they would just be like, well, you know, the, and they'd be talking about, you know that oh yeah mark's got a script he's and i'm like holy crap you know i was like 15 and i'm like holy crap like your kid from big ben is working on star trek and it it really it blew my mind and i found it inspirational as like look you know it doesn't matter where you're from or what you're doing like go out there and you work hard like good things can happen and so i thought i always thought those stories um were awesome so that's that's why i'm kind of wondering like how did you get into that process a little bit well first of all i'm really flattered that you know, my my success with Star Trek had that effect on you. Thanks for saying that. That sure, makes sure. me that makes me feel really great. Um, well, I'll just backtrack and go back to the mid nineteen sixties when the original Star Trek series was on. Oh hell yeah! It was on. That show came on. I was already so I was six years old when that when Star Trek premiered in nineteen sixty six. Okay. I, I was already a science fiction geek at, by that by six years old. Because I remember just being so thrilled that there was a new science fiction show coming on TV. And it was on, I distinctly remember that it was on, it was on NBC on Thursday nights from 6.30 to 7.30. And when I was six years old, my bedtime was 7 p.m. And I just, I remember, I remember pleading with my mom because she made the bedtime rules. I remember pleading with my mom to please let me stay up a half hour extra on Thursday nights just so I could watch Star Trek. And I, I guess she must have because because I watched the show when I was six and seven and eight and, and just fell in love with it. Of course. Um, so, so fast forward to years later and um, I was, I was uh, working with my first agent I was, let's see, I guess I was about 30. So this would have been 1990. Just signed on with my first agent in L.A. Um, and she, we, I was talking to her one day and she said, look, you know what you really need to do is write a spec script for Star Trek. Because she said they have this open door policy and it's just, it's a bonanza for writers who are just starting out. Okay. You don't, you don't need to have a track record for them to look at your work. So, you, you know, you, you can't pass up this opportunity. And I said, well, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. I'll do it. Um, and, and what she said was true. In, in the 1990s, when Star Trek The Next Generation was on the air, um, they had an open... They, they were smart enough to recognize that their fans had a lot of really good ideas. Of course. And so they just, they just sort of opened up the mailbox and said, we will read any script that anybody sends us because you just, you never know where the next, 
you know, the next real find is going to come from. Right, and these so, were, these were the days before fan fiction when people would be like, you yeah, know, sending yeah. in scripts to like Kirk and Spock making out or something. <laughs> right, exactly. So I didn't need much more encouragement. So I wrote I wrote a spec script. Spec is just short for speculation. It just means or speculative. It means that you're writing a script with no promise that anyone is going to buy it. You're just writing it on your own time and your own energy and you're hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a script. Uh, I wrote a script for next generation. And in the, in my script, it was, it was very dark and philosophical. Uh, in my story, every, the entire crew of the enterprise had lost the will to live and they were all on this suicidal binge and they were going to destroy the enterprise and no one would ever know what happened. Um, except data, the Android data was the only person who wasn't affected by the phenomenon. And so he was the only person who could save the crew, mm -hmm. but he couldn't figure out how to, because he couldn't understand how you could lose the will to live. So the whole script was all about data sort of going to the dark side and trying to understand how people could actually not want to be alive. So that script impressed somebody at Star Trek. It took a long time. It took about six months from the time I, my agent submitted that script to the time uh, I we got word back. But they said, "We're you really have an excellent grasp of the characters. We'd like you to pitch story ideas." So, um, so then I got the rule book. The rules were: I did not have to go out to California to pitch stories. They were happy to do it over the phone, which was great. Okay. Um, they said you can pitch as many as four different stories. And try to keep the pitches to around 10 or 15 minutes or so because they really they really wanted they didn't just want to hear a story idea. They wanted to hear how you would flesh it out and how you would tell the story with the beginning, the, the middle and the end. Sure. And, and how you would and how you would involve their characters in in the storyline. So. So you got you got you got four stories to pitch, but you only got one shot because there were so many people in the pipeline that um, they could really only afford to give people one chance. And if you, if you blew it, that was it. You were done. Wow. So, no, no pressure. Yeah. It was incredible. It was oh, incredible. Man. So I worked, you know, I spent a couple of months working up four stories. I was very proud of them. I was very excited about them. I did my pitch. I did it over the phone from my kitchen table. I was living in Monroe, Wisconsin at the time. Oh, um, absolutely. I know Monroe very well. In home of cheese days. Um, so, so I did my first pitch and I was pitching to one of the producers, a guy named Joe Minoski, who was really, really nice to deal with on the phone. Um, and so I pitched my four stories, he batted them all down and I thought, well, that's it. I had my chance and I blew it. And the next thing I know, Joe is saying, okay, here's what I want you to do next time. I want you to focus on this. I want you to, you know, stay away from that. I want you to tell this kind of story. And I, I interrupted him. I said, well, it, excuse me, what do you mean next time? Mm -hmm. I thought I only got one chance. And he said, well, that's the rule. But he said, I really like your stuff. So I, I, I want you to come back and try again. So I thought, well, all right. Yeah, what, what the <laughs> hell? Of course. Again, that's all the encouragement I need. I'll come back. So I spent a couple more months, worked up four more stories. Uh, same thing. They all got batted down. but And I can't remember which producer it was the second time, but... He batted down all four stories, but he said, but I like your stuff, you know, come back and try again when you got more stories. So this went on for like a ridiculous amount of time. This went on for about a year and a half. 
But I mean, that just goes to, sh- I mean, think about that, though. From the time you first submitted that spec script, uh-huh. you six months till you hear anything. And now, it, it, now you're two years into the relationship. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, not a dollar has been earned, nor a... Yeah. Uh, a word has been filmed yet, and so just yeah. just so people know, like this stuff takes time. Yeah, yeah, you have to have unbelievable patience. So, and I didn't really. So, I, but I, I had to learn it. I, I had to. I had to acquire. I had to develop my patience. So, so this goes on for a year and a half, where every two or three months, I'm pitching three or four stories, usually four. I wanted to make the most of everything. So, and they, they would get batted down and the producer would say, oh my, and in, in the, in a pattern emerged very often they would reject a story because the producer would say, I love your idea. Unfortunately, we already have another story in the works. that's very similar to this. I wish I had heard your pitch first because I like your angle on the story a lot better than the one we bought. So I want you to come back. And so at this time I had pitched to, Joe Minoski, I had pitched to Brandon Braga, I had pitched to um, Rene Echeverria, I had pitched to Ron Moore, who is now so legendary for his remake of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and you know they were all they were all really great guys to work with and all very encouraging. And what happened was so finally after a year and a half, I had I had um, pitched some stories to um, to Brandon Braga. And about, about two, and usually what would happen would be, um, I would pitch the stories and they'd say, okay, I really like, I really like this one out of your bunch. I'm going to take this one upstairs to Michael Pillar and, you know, see if we can get it through. And then they'd call me back maybe a month later and say, Mark, sorry, Michael, you know, Michael didn't like this one. So, you know, come back and try again. So, you know, so I, I was aware that there was this next step where the story had to get beyond the writer producer I was pitching to. It had to go upstairs to Michael Pillar to get his approval. And if Michael liked it, boom, then you were in. Okay. So, so I pitched these four stories to Brandon. This was like in the fall of 90, no, the spring of 90, I guess it must've been 94. Um, and Two weeks later, I get a phone call from from uh, Brandon, <clears throat> and he says, "Mark, we have an emergency. I really need your help." He said, "We just had a script thrown out. Michael Michael just decided he hated the script and he threw it out, which means we need a new completed script in six days." Oh. And he, he said, "I really want to use your Timescape story. The problem is, with only six days, we can't hire you to write the story or the script." So you won't get screen credit. We'll pay you for it. And I guarantee you will get more opportunities in the future. So, you know, <laughs> what was I going to say? Okay, sure. Let's, let's do it. Of so, course. so essentially they purchased one sentence from me. They purchased the core of the story idea, which was really just a visual. And it was that, um, it was that Picard returns to the enterprise from some away mission and finds that the enterprise and a Romulan spaceship are both frozen in time, but they've been frozen in time in the heat of battle, and the Romulan ship has just fired what will be the death blow to the Enterprise. So Picard has to untie this knot. He has to try to get time moving again to save the Enterprise, but he knows that the second he does, the Enterprise will be destroyed. Yeah, it's all over. 
Yeah. So, uh, so that was the idea they bought. They paid me $1,750 for it, which okay. is still, still probably word for word, the best, the best money I've ever made as a writer. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and then Brandon just took it over and he wrote the script in six days and just did, did a fantastic uh, job with it. it the, the episode is called Timescape. It's from season six of Next Generation. Um, and Brand, what Brandon did was he just, the story was complicated to begin with that I had pitched him and he just made it 10 times more complicated, which was, I was kind of amazed that he was able to do that since he only had the six days <laughs> to write right, the script. Right. But, but he did an amazing job. He made the story really complicated and really full of surprises and really fun. Um, and I, I thought it turned out really well. And sure enough, six weeks later, I'm doing my first pitch to their new show, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and I sold a story and uh, wrote the script and got my first screen credit and, and my first episode that I wrote on the air. So, well, that, so, that, so Brandon was right. I did get a better opportunity shortly thereafter. And that's pretty awesome. And also, even though you're, you know, your one sentence gets to be you know, part of the legacy of you know, one of the greatest science fiction series of all time. So that, I mean, that's pretty exciting. And then it gets you into Deep Space Nine, which, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty awesome in its own right. And Yeah. And just recently, just recently, uh, Playboy, a writer for Playboy magazine took on the monumental task of watching all 700 episodes of Star Trek, including mm. the animated series. That, I feel bad for him for that one. Yeah, and ranking them all in or in order, all seven hundred episodes, best to worst, and and that that next generation episode, Timescape, um, it was it ranked somewhere right around in the middle of the seven hundred. But but the reviewer said, and I loved him for this. He said this is probably the most far out episode of Next Generation that they ever did. So I was I was pretty proud of that. Nice, of course. And no, I read that. I read that on your on your blog. And and how did your DS nine uh, episodes fare? Um, it was kind of a mixed bag. The first episode I did was a second season episode called um, Second Sight. Uh, or no, maybe it was no. I guess it was. I think I sold it during the first season, but the episode aired during the second season. Okay. That's that's how it that's how it went out. And so the process is if they like your pitch. Then in the normal in the normal course of events, they will they do it a step at a time. If they like your pitch, then they will hire you to write the story. And to do that, you have to spend some time where, you know, you have to take notes from the producers and they say, here's what we want to see in the story. And they want that story document to be maybe 10 or 15 pages. And they really want to see you flesh it out in great detail. They want and they want to see how the events of the story um involve and affect their characters what what do their characters have at stake in your story that's what you really have to sell them on so if you so they sell so they buy the story for you know x number of dollars according to the writer's guild scale right and then if if they're happy with the job you did on the story treatment then the final step is that they will hire you to write the script and that's more like that's more of a month long process to do the story. It's just you just have a matter of a couple of days, probably less than a week to do that. If you're hired to do the script, then at that point I would go out to L.A. and spend three or four or five days at Paramount um, with the writers and producers, just 
in story session. We it, they call it a story break, and they would take the story and break it down into the the teaser and the five acts, and just break it down beat by beat. Um, okay, uh, here's the teaser. Here's where it takes place. Here are the characters who are present. This is what they're talking about. This is what's going on. This is how the scene ends. Boom! That leads into the next scene. Here's what's happening here. So if they if they if they're gonna use it, I mean, you get to come out and work in the room with the producers and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which was phenomenal. It was it was it was, it was so much fun. I can't I can't even tell you. Um, so yeah, so for second sight. So this was my first experience. I go out. They uh, we spend like I say, it was between three and five days. I don't remember. It was different each time. Um, but um, we we would break the story and then they would send me home and I would have two weeks to write the script, but which, which sounds like an incredibly stressful <laughs> amount of time. Uh, and it is, but, but after all the work you've done, breaking the, breaking down the story, it's, it's not that hard because it's just you details have, from that yeah, on. you have, you have this very detailed, uh, structure that you can follow a very detailed roadmap. You, you, you never have to sit and wonder, okay, what happens next? Because you've already worked that out. So, so you just get to do the fun writing for two weeks and it, and it's a blast. And then I would submit the script to them after two weeks. And then they would invariably, one of the writers, usually the showrunner, who at that time was Michael Piller would, uh, would do the final rewrite on the script. So you, you always get rewritten. You can send them, you can submit the most incredible script ever written by anyone in the history of the universe. And they're still going to rewrite it just because that is the showrunner's prerogative and, and, you know, and it's, it's his or her world. So right. he or she gets the final say as to what, you know, what actually goes in front of the cameras. So, so that was, that was a, a big lesson to learn was that they were, no matter how good my stuff was, they were going to change it. In fact, at one point I had a funny conversation with, by the end of the run of Deep Space Nine, Ira Stephen Bear was the showrunner. Right. And I had a conversation and Ira is just a hilarious guy. I had a conversation with him and I said, I said, okay, so would you please finally explain this to me? I've, I've done some scripts for you where you've loved the script. I've done some scripts for you where you've hated the script. And in either case, they both get rewritten to the same degree. And I said, what, why? And Ira just shook his head and he said, Mark, he said, all we ask of a writer is that they get it to the 50 yard line and then we'll take it the rest of the way. And I, and I said, so, so I can give you my best effort or my worst effort. And it doesn't really matter. It's good. You're going to pay me the same amount of money. And the result is always going to be the same. And I would just shrug and say, that's Holly weird, Mark. Yep. <laughs> so, so that was a really interesting lesson, you know, and if, I guess if I had really wanted to take it to the extreme, I could have just said, well, all right, you're only going to get half my efforts from here on out. But of course I know. <laughs> What was your favorite character to write for? Who was who your favorite character to write for? Like the most fun, like the voice that you think that you could capture the, the most easily? I, I always had an affinity for Chief O'Brien, and I couldn't even tell you why. I, I, I love the work of Columbini. I thought he was a great actor. Yes. And I thought he was, he was one of the characters who this – was, this was an idiosyncrasy of Star Trek that I never got used to. They, um, the producers – did not want you to write anything funny for the characters. Every time I tried it, I would get batted down. They would say, "No, no, 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 no! You can't have Cisco do. You can't have Cisco say something funny. That's what we have Quark for." 
And, and I'd be like, really? So out of your seven main characters, only one of them can ever say or do anything funny. Right. Yep, that, was, that was pretty much the rule. But I, and I, so I guess one of the things I liked about Chief O'Brien was he, he was a character who, who could kind of, you could kind of get away with a little fun stuff with him. And I couldn't even tell you why, but there was just something about that character and that actor that, you know, I think I think he was able to put a little sly humor into things, um, you know, probably better than some of the other people on the show. Oh, and so I, I would say O'Brien was my favorite. And his performance was always, you know, he always had a, a great performance. I mean, yeah, Star Trek kept him employed for how many years? You know, like a <laughs> good long time. He was he was on both shows, him and Worf, yeah. you know, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That, were there any particular changes that they did to any of your scripts that were like, oh, man, I can't believe they changed this? Like, you know, they anything that changed that you felt affected the the original idea of the story to a point that annoyed you? Yeah, yeah. I, and that's that's it's a very, very specific example there. I, I never figured out where this came from, but I, I always imagine it came from Michael Piller, who who was, as I said, he was. He was the showrunner for most of the next generation and for most of deep, the, the first probably three or four seasons of deep space nine before he went off to do his own stuff. Right. He was the overlord um, for years. Yeah, he was, he was, he, aside from Rick Berman, he was the great bird of the galaxy after Roddenberry passed <laughs> away. Um, but yeah, there were my, uh, my second episode for deep space nine because um, they were all very happy with the job I had done on Second Sight, my first Deep Space Nine episode. So they gave me, I, I can never figure out if this was meant as a test or a really bad joke or what, but they had a story that they had bought from an intern and they basically had committed themselves somehow into going ahead and writing a script from this story and producing an episode from the story. The problem was nobody liked the story. His dad must have been a producer or somebody. You know, <laughs> I, I could never, I could never figure out what the deal was, but they, they, yeah, I don't even want to speculate cause I just don't know, but none of the producers wanted to write the script. So they said, Hey, let's get Mark to do it. Don't so, do it. so that was my, that was my first actual script assignment for Deep Space Nine. And then and the, the core idea of the story was they encounter a planet that only exists in our dimension for a few days once every like 60 or 80 years. Oh, the Brig- Brigadoon. Right. Brigadoon in outer space. Exactly. <laughs> and, it you know, it's a lame story because there's just nothing you can do with it. There's nothing you can do with this. So the, so the crux of the story that they had bought from this intern was that um, Jadzia Dax, the, um, the symbiont, mm-hmm. she falls in love with a dude from this planet and decides that when the planet shuffles off into its other dimension, she's going to go along with it. And so we won't see her for 60 years or whatever the, whatever the time interval was. And, you know, and we all know from page one that she's not going to do it. There's no way that you can actually build any interest or suspense in that kind of story. So I was, I was, and that's why nobody wanted to write the script. So I got, I got stuck with it. I, I felt that I had done a pretty good job. Here's what I, here's what I did that I was happy with. The way the original story was envisioned was this planet that appeared every 60 years was very 
peaceful and um, uh, idyllic. And it was the, and and I, and here's where I come back to Mike, Michael Pillars. I think Michael Pillar just had this thing where he liked to imagine these pastoral alien societies where everyone wears loose fitting pastel covered tunics and they all live in adobe houses and they all have one name and everyone knows each other and they all talk to each other. Come for dinner tonight, my friend, I will make vegetable stew. I think that's, so, that sounds about, about like 25 or 30 alien planets that I remember from the shows. Exactly. Exactly my point. And it's insipid. I'm sorry, but it's insipid. And I, and that was the way they wanted me to go with that planet. And I, I kind of refused to do it because I knew how awful it would be. So I, I mean, it was, it was still a very low tech society. There was really nothing I could do to reimagine, you know, the, the, the nature of this world we were visiting. But I tried to make it just a little more interesting, tried to give the people a little bit, you know, a little bit of an edge, a little bit more character where they're not just being these kind of simpy people in tunics <laughs> talking about vegetable stew. And it did not fly. It did not fly at all. Michael Piller hated the script. He also didn't. I kind of rubbed him the wrong way. That's that's a whole nother story. Um, but he did not like the script. It got, he just tossed the script in the wastebasket and they started all over again and just completely rewrote the script. A couple of my ideas, a couple of my lines of dialogue pr probably made it into the finished product. I don't even know because it's been so long since I've watched that episode because it's just not very good. It's not a good story because as I said, there's, there's just, there's nothing you can do with that main dramatic dilemma of will Dax go or will she stay? There's right. just nothing you can do with she's, it. She's never going to go to a low-tech society. Forget. And you know no. she's a serious yeah. regular, so it's not. I mean, obviously yeah. they killed Tasha Yar, but that was the one surprise in 30 years yeah. of Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Um, no, of course that was that was uh, the innocent natives, the, the dances with wolves on the planet, or whatever. Is, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is something that I I, I remember all too well. But yeah. uh, that's interesting that there, there was they had a specific or Michael had a specific agenda of what he envisioned, and then you delivered something and he's like, nope. Yeah. Um, yeah, not 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 even close, Mark. Not even close. <laughs> but that's a, that's got a, a little bit of a heartbreaker. I mean, I guess it was as an artist though. I think we're all used to our hearts get broken in little ways all the time. Uh, you know, it's the real heartbreaker of that story though was with with each episode I would sort of work I would sort of be teamed up with one of the producers who would be sort of my my guide and mentor through the process mm -hmm. uh, so on on that particular episode which I titled Meridian they kept my title at least I, I called it Meridian uh, because you know East meets West blah 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 <laughs> whatever so they kept the title so I was working with uh, Renee Echeverria on that episode and I always liked Renee a lot he's just really a fantastic guy and he loved my script. He really loved my script. And he just said, Mark, I would not be surprised if you get an offer of a staff job from this script. Wow. Yeah. So I was really pumped. My expectations were really high. And then he calls me back a couple of days later. And he's like, Mark, I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> but I just went into Michael Pillar's office and I said, well, what do you think about Mark's script? Isn't it great? And he said, Michael just looked at me without saying a word. He picked your script up and he dropped it in his wastebasket. Oh. 
that was that. So yeah, it was pretty brutal. That yeah, that's <laughs> they're not even pulling punches on the. Uh, yeah. I'm telling you the story. You could, it wasn't even like you know what Michael just said. It, it just wasn't right, or you didn't capture the right voice or anything. He's just yeah. straight up like, no, he, he filed it in the round file. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so no, that's great. And I could I could probably talk to you about a Star Trek all day because that's my, and I, I love hearing about these uh, stories of the you know the shows that I used to watch faithfully. Every week, especially Deep Space Nine came out right when I was maybe a junior in high school. So uh, I remember having a discussion with the guys on the forensics team. Like uh. I, I was with the cool kids, obviously, in forensics. But um, so I remember having the discussion like the day after Deep Space Nine premiered. You know, and just everybody's like, okay, what you, you know, it's on Channel 24 or something like that. Uh-huh. We're all just, you know, you know, talking about it, discussing it. We're like, well, is it going to be as good as. Next generation, is it going to be, you know, who do we like better? Cisco looks like a tough guy, blah, blah, blah. It just <laughs> yeah. really, really was, really was a fun thing. And so I, that's a, it's a delight to hear about a little bit of behind the scenes. But, um, well, it's fun to talk about. And I'll just say, I'll just put in one more thing about Star oh, Trek before we move on. Please do. And so, so of the five episodes I did, four of them were Deep Space Nine episodes. And I've been really getting a kick out of lately, I'd say over the last three or four years or so, when when I read new sort of critical reappraisals of Star Trek, a lot of a lot of commentators now point to Star Trek Deep Space Nine as the best of the bunch, or maybe not the best, but sort of the deepest and darkest and meatiest in a lot of ways of of all the Star Trek series, which I really appreciate. Well, and and I can see because they could go deep into Bajoran culture mm-hmm. in a way that you couldn't do when you're visiting a new planet every week. Yeah, I mean they dealt with some they dealt with some pretty heavy heavy stuff, uh, and you know and they didn't flinch from it, and and they had the actors they had the performers who could pull it off, and yeah, they did a lot of great things with that show. Yeah, and the Dominion War and like everything, yeah. every like they had a chance to develop more. I mean, when you think of the original Star Trek, I mean, what was there maybe one or two two parters? I think only only two parter I can think of is um, the one they had with Captain Pike. Yeah, the cage. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, you know, Next Gen had a bunch of two-parters, or but they kind of—I mean, that was it. So you had a two-part episode where uh, Deep Space Nine was allowed to bring a story out over the whole season. Yeah, yeah. And that you know presages a lot of what we you know we we watch serialized shows today in a way that 25 years like no like even an episode of something of a of a high concept drama at the time, like Hill Street Blues or something, still you could wa- you could w- watch it the next week and not know what happened the week before and you'd be fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, try to do that with Lost. That's it. <laughs> uh, and I think Deep Space Nine was one of the first ones that allowed those kind of season-long arcs. And I know Babylon, F- I never got into Babylon 5 as much as some of my friends absolutely loved it. And, and I, I did my time. I did my time. <laughs> But um, I think DS9 was the first one that really enabled that kind of depth in, uh, in story. And so I think that's why your people are saying it was one of the best of the bunch because it just – it was different and uh, it allowed to take time with the characters. And I think that's yeah. what's cool about it. Yeah, and I appreciate that and I'm, I, and I, and I'm proud of it. I'm proud of my work. Yeah, I think you should. Just, despite, despite Michael Pillar and his wastebasket, I'm still <laughs> proud of it. Of course. I mean because if you – I don't think any writer or artist has a story – um, 
you know, nobody deals think without rejection. Like that, that's mm-hmm. part of the game. You go through, like I think about it times I played a show and I'm thinking I'm playing this great song. The show's going really well. And I look out in the crowd. I'm like, boy, I just delivered a great performance. And it's crickets. <laughs> and, and you're looking at it. And then just somebody's like, play some Nickelback, jerk. And you're just oh, like, oh, oh, no. Like, <laughs> right. And, I, you know, I'm stuck in Rock Island, Illinois, and somebody's throwing notes to say play Nickelback at me. What am I supposed to do? So – Everybody goes through those various <laughs> kinds of things, and you're like, "Well, I'm proud of what I did." Like, you know, whether it worked or not, or whether yeah. it went through or not. <laughs> and um, what I like is how your how your writing career has taken a turn. And and Star Trek's awesome, but it it exists in the land of fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, you've you've gone on to become a UFO investigator, and that's something. Uh, you know, you've taken your interest and brought it up uh, to the next level. And I'd just be interested in how did you get involved with, because you work with MUFON, right? Hi, it's Wendy. I'm so sorry to be the one to tell you this, but the interview will continue on next week's episode. We're out of time today, so that's terrible. I know I hate it when people cut the interview in half like that, but hopefully you're enjoying Mike and Mark's discussion and... Look forward to next week on Wednesday when we release the second half of it. Thanks for listening, and you can find the show notes for today's episode at othersidepodcast.com slash 22. For the song this week, we picked a track that we thought would be perfect for a discussion about Star Trek. Now, a couple years ago, NASA had a contest where they were looking for wake-up music for one of the missions. Well, this is the song we submitted to that contest. It didn't get picked, but we went back into the Wayback Machine and reworked and remixed it, especially for this podcast here. Hope you like it. This song is called Final Frontier.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.